Hi everyone and welcome to episode 68 of SAMA, a program which invites an expert to talk about their area of expertise. This week we are very lucky to have Dr Ginger Savely with us to talk about Morgellons. Ginger is a family nurse practitioner with a doctorate degree in nursing practice from Case Western Reserve University which she was honoured with the Dean's Legacy Award for her research on Morgellons disease. She's considered one of the top experts in the United States on the diagnosis and treatment of tick-borne diseases and is the nation's leading clinical expert on Morgellons disease. Now in this exciting episode, Dr. Ginger Savely will share what is Morgellons, was Morgellons not delusional parasitosis, how is Morgellons treated, and finally, what is the connection between Lyme disease and Morgellons? So, welcome to our show, Ginger. It's lovely to have you with us. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for asking me. I love to talk about this topic. Should we, should we um, jump straight into it and start talking? Sure. What is Morgellons? Well, first of all, as we discussed last night, you and I pronounce it differently. <laughs> yeah, that's it's probably the New Zealand thing. I don't know. No, but anyway, I, I say more Jellins. Yes. And, um, and I, who knows what's correct. I've always said more Jellins because I think originally the first person who talked about it was back in the 1600s in France. And so I think I'm giving it a bit of a French twist with the more Jellin, you know, and that kind of thing. But uh, Morgellons is, is a, um, a disease that affects primarily the skin, but also affects uh, pretty much every body system. But the unique identifying characteristic of the disease is having filaments that come out of the skin, which is a very unusual thing to have happen, particularly filaments of different colors, even like blue and, and red and orange color filaments. And a lot of people think they have Morgellons because they feel like they have crawling sensations, things like that in their skin. But without the filaments, that's, there's no Morgellons diagnosis. That's basically the diagnostic and unique feature of the disease. Right. People have, uh, not all patients break out in lesions on their body, but many of them do. But I do have, a, say, maybe 15% that never get a lesion. And so, again, it's back down to those filaments coming out of, of the skin. And that is a, a very uncomfortable thing for the sufferers. Yeah, it would be. Now, lesions as in cuts or splitting? They look exactly like, in fact, they usually are considered to be, um, like, say, a mosquito bite that you scratch too hard and you know how it'll just get, like, the, the top area of the skin will, will, will come off. Right. And so a lot of times the patients will go into a doctor and they'll just say, well, you just had a lot of bites and you scratched them too hard. But the patients continually insist that, no, these, these lesions appeared spontaneously looking exactly like that. I did not scratch them to make them look that way. That's the way they appear, just like that. Yeah. Gosh. Now, these fibers that grow, what, yeah. are, they? what are they? Well, interestingly enough, what we have found out in recent years, because I've been involved in, in Mortellans for 15 years. I've been you know, researching it, taking care of people, thinking about it. You know, my, It's been a big part of my life for 15 years. 
But in the, only in the last few years, we've had a few volunteer researchers come forth and really work on it. And the interesting thing is that the fibers or filaments, if you want to call them that, are actually made out of the body's own proteins, uh, collagen and keratin, which are proteins our own body produces. And collagen, basically, we find that throughout the body, but it sort of holds everything together. And, and keratin, we find it in our hair and in our nails. And so these fibers that are being made, um, they're basically, you could think of this as a disease where something normal and natural that's supposed to happen in the body is happening at the wrong time, the wrong place, the wrong quantity. So in other words, if your, your uh, keratinocytes at, at the tip of your fingers grow a keratin, that's good, You're, you got nails, and that's, that's what you should do. But you should not be having this spontaneously throughout your whole body. So something is happening that's giving messages cellularly to, uh, to these um, particular cells that are supposed to do this particular job in a particular place, but something's gone awry, and they're just doing it randomly here, there, and everywhere, and in much larger quantities than, than they should be. And so the interesting thing is, you know, why? You know, what is, what's making the body do this? And we've been continually just pretty much going down the path of feeling like this is an infection. You know, it's pretty clear from many things, from the research and also the fact that people respond so well to antibiotics, that there's some kind of infection that's caused some sort of disruption in some of the cells of the body, causing them to do unusual things in unusual places. And so the infection, of course, we don't know for sure what the infection is, but we have seen such an association with patients with tick-borne diseases like Lyme disease and some other tick-borne diseases too, like Bartonella and Babesia and Ehrlichia and Anaplasma. Their ticks carry a lot of infections. Mostly people think of Lyme disease when they think of ticks, but they, ticks carry about 30 different pathogens. So if a person had a tick bite, there's a good chance they got more than one infection you know, with that one bite. Gosh. Honestly, though, most of my patients don't even know they ever had a tick bite because the tick that um, spreads Lyme disease is the size of a poppy seed. And it, imagine if you, if you got that little tiny tick, say, in your hair, for example, uh, you, would, you would never see it. And so many people never even know that know they have the bite. Wow. So yeah. you've got the fibers growing out from your skin. Uh, do the fibers have any function? Does does the pathogen need the fibers for any function? For that, any I don't uh, think so. We don't know that for sure. It's. I think it's more like something is is um, has as these fibers are just sort of produced in, in in an amount that they should not be in places they should not be. And I know a lot of my patients are are quite concerned about the fact that, that the fibers themselves may be contaminants. Like for example, they're concerned about getting the fibers on another person, then they will catch the disease. However, that really is not the way this works because those uh, filaments or fibers, just think of those as, as um, contaminants, exudate. It doesn't, those don't spread the disease. You know, whatever is causing Morgellons disease has to get 
into the body, like through a, a bite or, or a puncture wound of some kind. And this often I'll, I'll hear people say this all started after I got, um, you know, I was tending to my roses and, and I got stuck with a rose thorn or I got stuck with a cactus thorn or I, I, I got a, a carpenter with a splinter. Um, so many times it starts with a bite or some sort of puncture. So something dirty gets under the skin and, and gets into the bloodstream that way. So that's why I think people really need to not be so concerned about casual contact. Like you don't need to worry if you sit next to somebody in a bus, for example, that has more Morgellons disease because you're not going to catch it that way through through that sort of ca you know casual contact, as I would say. And I, I know that most of patients who have this are very, very concerned about that they don't want to be around their family anymore. They don't want to be around their children or their grandchildren because they're afraid they're, they'll pass it on to them that way. So that's quite, uh, it's quite, they'd have this feeling of isolation, wouldn't they, as well as having this disease? Yes. Putting their... it's, it is. It's, it's, um, it's a very, very high suicide rate in this group, unfortunately. And it's kind of understandable. People become, they're, they're terribly miserable. Nobody can help them. Uh, most everywhere they go, um, doctors will just tell them, well, you, you need a psychiatrist. You're crazy. There's nothing wrong with you. And their family members often desert them as well. And sometimes they lose their job. They're, they're, they lose their spouses. It's, it's a pretty miserable situation, you know, and some people just feel like there's no more hope and they can't get anyone to help them and they just don't want to live that way any longer. And it's very sad for me how many patients are taking their lives. And I think it's so important for people to know if anybody's out there and has this disease and feels helpless, you know, please have your doctor email me and we can review that at some point, the email address, and I'll be glad to have to help them and how to treat you. I mean, people do get better. People can get better with this. And it's, it's experimental, but it's all, all of the drugs being used are, well, we, what we call in the States, you know, FDA approved. They're, they're not um, unusual, scary drugs. They're just being used for, for a different uh, purpose than which they were originally intended, right? So, for example, we're using several different antibiotics, antifungal, antiparasitics, uh, you know, they're, they're not indicated for more gentleness disease, but we're, we're finding they're helpful for people. So it's, it's the way I've been doing it all these years is just let's try something. Let's see what we can, you know, get to work because I've been criticized for that because people say, well, you know, how can you treat something when you don't know what the causative pathogen in? Isn't that irresponsible just to treat people with who knows what? But I feel like it's irresponsible to let people suffer. And I, I've, through the years, just tried many different things to help people. And, and you know, kind of, uh, I can't say I've nailed it by any means because every patient is entirely different. So it's a whole new story every time. But I really have kind of narrowed it down to some things that tend to help the most. And at least some things that can be tried in sequential order, because not everyone responds the same way. That's the interesting thing about this. You would think by now I would have it figured out and I could just take every patient in and line them up and do what I need to do with them. But everybody is just a little bit different and it's very challenging, challenging to treat. I think that's why a lot of doctors don't want to, you know, go, go there. I'd like to talk a little bit about your early years. How right. you became involved with this type of research? Yeah, it's it's kind of it kind 
of interesting because I was, um, well, for many years I was involved in treating chronic fatigue syndrome. And then I sort of got in the very early 2000s, became aware that many of my patients with chronic fatigue syndrome actually had Lyme disease. And when I say Lyme disease, I also mean tick-borne co-infections as well, because as I mentioned, ticks do carry a lot of infections. So I, I gradually sort of converted over from a person who treated chronic fatigue syndrome to a person who treated Lyme and other tick-borne diseases. So by 2003, that was kind of my thing that I was doing, and it was funny because I was doing it in central Texas. And Texas is not well known in the United States for being a place where you think of ticks or Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. It's there, but most people aren't aware of it. It's not as famous as it is, say, in Connecticut, you know, or New York State or the northeast part of the country. So um, anyway, I was diagnosing and treating these patients. And ever so often, I'd get a Lyme patient come in and say to me, and they say it, they would be very embarrassed when they'd say it. And they'd almost, re they'd almost resist saying it, you know, because they were afraid I was going to judge them. And they'd say, you know, I hate to say this, but I have these really strange, um, like threads kind of thing coming out of my skin. And sometimes they're even that long and, wow. and they're colored and the, and the, and I just can pull them out of my skin. And you know, what the heck is this? Well, when they first started telling me that, I, shoot, I didn't know either. I, I thought, well, this sounds, you know, pretty crazy and un unlikely. Mm. And, but then I was, corresponding with my uh, colleague in Houston, a doctor who was also treating Lyme, and, uh, and I asked him, have you ever had any Lyme patients say these things to you? And he said, yes, I have. I have this certain subset that, that talk about this. And so we began communicating a lot about it, you know, because we, we, were, we found it to be very fascinating, you know, and we didn't know what, what it was, but it was certainly fascinating. And then Dr. Harvey uh, in Houston, who unfortunately has since passed away, was the one who hooked in with Mary Leto, who was the woman who basically gave it the name because her three-year-old son had it and she had gone online and researched and everything and found that there was something similar back from the 1600s um, that was called Morgellons disease. So that's, that's how we kind of started talking about that. So then, because we were starting to see it in our subgroup of, of, of Lyme patients, what happened was, um, oh, I, I had a, a local news station do a, 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 a spot on me and, and my patients with this Morgellons disease, maybe a four or five minute little spot, you know, on TV. The next day, it was kind of the, the proverbial, the switchboards were slammed kind of thing because people were just calling, 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 saying, I have this, I've had it for years, I'm afraid to tell anyone about it, everyone tells me I'm crazy. And so people were so excited, you know, they felt like they'd been validated, you know, there's really a thing and other people have it too. And, and then of course, then they all wanted to come in and see me and it was hard to fit all those people in. But as the people would come in to see me, who had these symptoms of Morgellons disease, I thought, well, okay, this, this was occurring in a subset of my Lyme patients. So maybe the first thing I should do with these people with Morgellons is just test them for, for Lyme, you know, and, and other tick-borne infections. Let's try that, you know. And then an awful lot of them were coming out positive. And, and it's really hard to pick up a positive Lyme test because the tests are notoriously uh, not very sensitive and there are many, many false negatives. So a lot of times you, you don't really get the, the positive test. But anyway, so then I, even on the ones where I didn't get the positive test, I just started treating them as though they had Lyme disease. And they they started to get better. 
And then later, um, through the years, and we started to get some pe more people interested in this, we got some volunteer researchers, and they started finding, you know, the Borrelia bacteria that causes Lyme in the lesions itself. And so, you know, the plot continually thickened in terms of this whole association with Lyme and Morgellons. And as the years have gone on, I have found that 97% of my Morgellons patients end up having Lyme disease or, and or another tick-borne infection. They're usually shocked to find it out because many times they're people who don't even know they've had a tick bite. They don't have maybe the classic symptoms because usually when people hear about Lyme disease, tick-borne infection, the most classic symptom I think is the joint pain. But not all Lyme patients have joint pain. So a lot of these patients, when I tell them, well, you actually have Lyme disease, they'd be shocked because they say, but I don't even have joint pain, so how could I? But Lyme disease presents in different ways with different people. And some people are, um, you know, it, it affects different body systems with, with different people. And so it, it's, it, it's a complicated thing to diagnose for that reason. Not only we've got these tests that are not very good, but we've got um, people that present entirely different ways. I've had people sitting in my waiting room talking to each other, and they're all kind of looking at each other going, it's hard to believe we all have the same disease <laughs> because it, they have such different symptoms, wow. you know. Could it yeah. be different, different blood types as well that are presenting? presenting? Well, it, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, they, they say that, um, that uh, people with a positive blood type are, are more prone to getting uh, tick bites. And uh, I, I, it's a pretty common blood type in the United States anyway. So, but uh, I think it's about 40%. But, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the studies has shown that uh, that they're, they're more attracted to people with that blood type, let's say. Like, you know, they always say that uh, people with O blood type are, uh, are more attractive uh, to mosquitoes. So anyway, I don't know what to, to think of all that. But the thing is, I get these people all of a sudden start coming in in droves. You know, they've got these unusual symptoms. They've got lesions. They've got fibers that come out. And they, the fibers cause them a lot of pain because – what they'll do, these fibers will kind of grow on, uh, um, sideways under the skin, and, and it feels like, you know, something's biting you or cutting you. I mean, it's painful, because if you could think of even just sort of like a skinny little fingernail kind of thing, when you're thinking about keratin, something like that just traveling through your skin, it, it's painful. And people do sort of dig at themselves to try to get these things out. But unfortunately, when they do that, doctors say, aha, you know, now we know you're crazy because you're, you're digging at yourself. And that's just a classic sign right there of a delusional person, a person who has delusions of parasites, you know. And I think it's only normal that a person would try to extract something that's causing them torture, right? You know, so oh, sure. And, you know, but that's, it's, it's unfortunate how many doctors are really not listening to their patients and are just immediately categorizing them as delusional, as crazy, and just sort of, you know, literally booting them out of their office. I've heard terrible stories of people going in and, and having doctors just, just throw them out of their office and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this. You're crazy. Wow. Now just just, rem just a reminder for people viewing, you can ask questions for Facebook just under the video live stream broadcasting, or you can ask, live if you've pre-registered. Now, have you seen a shift in the way that doctors are treating uh, uh, 
looking at Lyme? Are they accepting that there is actually... Well, tiny bit. <laughs> it's been a slow, slow process through the years. But yes, I, I am seeing it. And I think the, um, the, the thing that I'm seeing that, that gives me hope is I'm getting more patients where their doctors are saying things like, I think you have this, but I just don't know how to treat it. Whereas it used to be even Lyme patients, not even the ones with Morgellons, but even Lyme patients would often be sent off to a psychiatrist because a doctor would say, well, you just have too many random symptoms. Nobody has that many symptoms. It's, it, uh, clearly this is psychosomatic. And, and they you know, just kind of send them on off to the, uh, to the psychiatrist's office. But what I'm seeing now is more and more Doctors are emailing me and asking me for help, which is a great thing. And I'm seeing it with the Morgellons too. I'm getting probably one email a day now from a doctor somewhere in the world saying, I have a patient, I'm pretty sure they have Morgellons based on you know what I've heard about it so far, what I've read, what, what can I do? And I mean, that's huge for me because I mean, for so many years, I was called crazy, my patients were called crazy, you know, nobody would have ever even admitted there was such a disease, much less, you know, asked for help with treating it. So that's, I feel like that's a little bit of an advance. You know, it's taking a long time to get there, but it's, um, you know, that's an improvement for sure. Right. I'm always encouraged. You were saying before that the tests for Lyme are notorious for being um, well, not very accurate. Why is that? With all the other, with all the well, because it's very difficult to make the the gold standard test for a bacteria of any kind is to do a culture, you know, to get it get them to grow. And so, hey, you've definitely got that. that that's a that's what we do with the strep throat. You know, we we try we do a strep culture. But unfortunately, with the with the bacteria, it's a spirochete, a little squiggly kind of bacteria. Uh, that causes Lyme disease, they're very, very, very slow to culture out. Very slow, and it's just not um, practical to diagnose someone through means of, uh, and most labs are just not set up. When you have to have, let something grow for at least six weeks, maybe even six months, you know, they're used to having things grow for 24 to 48 hours, and you have your answer. So with something, a slow-growing bacteria like that, the cultures are just kind of, it's just not practical, right? So that well, the way we're looking for the presence of the disease is a secondary way. And the secondary way you look is you look for antibodies. And that's when you're diagnosing by saying, hey, this person has this disease because look, their body's producing antibodies to it. So that's kind of logical, right? Mm -hmm. But then, and that works pretty well for most, most infections. But here's the problem we have with Lyme disease. Sometimes people have had it for a very long time and their body has really just, for a number of reasons, stopped making antibodies. So they have it, they have it, but they're not showing up positive on the test because their antibodies are all being used up in antibody antigen complexes. So basically they're all busy, they're all busy, tied up, or they, um, they, they, the body is just sort of almost pooped out of, of making the antibodies because it's just kind of been going on so long. Uh -huh. And so a lot of times you'll have a person who clearly has Lyme disease, but they test negative through an antibody test. So it's, it's not ideal. Uh, the, the, the whole testing situation is frustrating. And most of us who specialize in this end up, in all honesty, doing most of our diagnosis through history, symptoms, 
and how a patient responds to treatment. We're criticized for this because mostly doctors really do like to have pretty clear-cut things. They like to have those test results and they like to retest and, and see, you know, okay, is it gone now? But unfortunately, it's just not that easy with treating uh, tick-borne diseases. And you're not going to have that clear-cut test to help you out. And you're also not going to have that clear-cut test to tell you it's time to stop treating. And so it's, it, it's tricky. And it's understandable that a lot of doctors really don't want to even go there. It's too, it's too complicated. It takes up a lot of time. Doctors are busy. They, you know, it's just, it's just too much to get into. And then when you add on that the Morgellons component which makes it all the more sort of unusual and bizarre, and they really don't know what to make of that. I think even the, the well-meaning doctors are, are, are hesitant to go there because, well, first of all, they're, they're honestly, they're afraid for their licenses because they're afraid that their regulatory boards are going to come down on them for treating something that's not known and accepted. You know, so this is what always happens when some a disease first comes comes around, you know, is, is I remember when, when AIDS first came around and, and the first doctors who treated it were really looked down on and very few doctors were actually uh, working with the disease. And so that's, that's I guess, the, the history of medicine, you know, and I'm hoping things will gradually change. But honestly, the, we need better recognition because we cannot get the funding we need for research on this disease. And we desperately need more research, but research costs money. And, you know, we can't get any funding. The NIH had told us uh, when we applied for funding about 10 years ago, we do not fund um, research on diseases that don't exist. <laughs> well, you know, how are you going to prove a disease exists <laughs> unless you can, you know, get the funding for it, right? You're as well so, tight loop there, I can see that. <laughs> right, exactly. So, but luckily we've had some volunteer researchers, we've had some, you know, donations for pri by private individuals, but still it's, it's, you know, for this kind of research, you need a lot of money. And, and we're, we just have not been able to, to, to get that. And so we're, we're moving along at a snail's pace and getting this thing recognized, um, finding out for sure what the, you know, what's actually causing it and really going for, you know, how to best treat it and cure it. Meanwhile, there's many, many thousands of people just terribly suffering. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's just an awful situation that we're in. Hard, hard to, to, to go forth, you know, with this thing the way it is. Yeah, about um, a few months ago, we developed a little microscope. This is our G-scope, uh -huh. and we can see in your eye any any bacteria, oh. and even people have seen spirochetes. I'm wondering whether Lyme, you'd, you'd see any Lyme in your eye or the fluid on your eye. So the well, the, the, the bacteria, the, the spiderpeats that cause Lyme are so incredibly tiny, you can't even see them with a regular microscope. You need a dark field microscope. So it would be pretty impossible to be able to, to, to see those. But, um, and then the other problem, too, is that when you're just straight looking at blood and looking for spirochetes, which I know you... Uh, I understand you pronounce that a different way than I do too. But <laughs> I don't know, it's just our, our country background or what. But anyway, we say spirochetes. And the spirochetes are, for those who don't know, they're, they're, they're uh, bacteria that are, are in a shape of a coil. 
and, and they move by straightening out, and it's kind of like a slinky, and then they go back together. So they can, they're, they're just so, so, so tiny in their, in their width that they can just move in to anything, and they can just move through tissue and get into cells and get into deep spaces in, in the body, and they do like to hide out in those spaces where they can't be found very easily by the immune system and attack. So that it's quite the formidable foe, the Lyme bacteria, you know. So what it, we don't know for sure what's going on with the whole connection with Lyme and Morgellons. I mean, there are those who are saying Lyme causes Morgellons. Well, I don't know that we're quite there yet. We, we, we know there's an association. We don't know whether Lyme causes Morgellons or not. Right. The interesting thing that I find I'm sorry, once I get started talking, I just never stop. Oh, <laughs> it makes it easy for me and be it. I was going to say. It's really what you're talking about, so please. Speak. John, I won't, I won't let him have a word. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then uh, he opens his mouth like he's going to ask a question. But anyway, sorry about that. Sorry about that. No, no, don't apologize. It's just the way I'm I get kind of excited about my, my little thing here, my topic, you know. But, um, you know, I think... Because you've been doing it for quite a number of years. Right, and, right. And you take taking it to new levels of research. So it's definitely a subject that you, you've become very... Right. About, so. and, and, you know, just dealing with people every day. I mean, hearing their stories, and people have such similar stories, there are quite a lot of symptoms that go along with Morgellons disease. It's not just the fibers. There are many weird, unusual symptoms that we still can't really, you know, understand. Like just the fact that, for example, many of the patients get a sort of a slimy uh, feeling on their skin. And we conjectured that, oh, maybe it's biofilm. I mean, we're, you know, it could be alginate, which is the protein that um, sort of makes biofilm, because biofilm is the way bacteria, uh, they, they kind of stick together, and so it's a safety and numbers kind of thing. Bacteria just mm -hmm. glue themselves together in a biofilm, and that way it's, it's harder for the immune system to get at them. It's harder for the uh, an antibiotics to work, that kind of thing. So anyway, that's just one of the many other symptoms. They get this kind of a, some people say it feels waxy, some people say slimy. But people say they feel like they need to take a shower like four times a day. It's just kind of an unclean feeling that they get. And then um, people get like little things that are like shards and like glitter. I mean, people often say, and I've seen it on my patients, it's, you know, like glitter that you might use for arts and crafts or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like little silver, yeah. teeny tiny. You'll, you'll, you'll see that on people's um, face and on their skin and they talk about, this glitter type thing coming out of them. And I just feel strongly that when, when you have hundreds of people coming forth, all saying the same exact constellation of symptoms, you, you need to look at that and not just write it off and say, they're all crazy. Because when they first started coming to me, it, it wasn't so well talked about like it is now. Now they, they like to say, oh, it's mass hysteria. You know, it's like people get on the internet, they learn about it, so they say, yeah, I have those symptoms. And, and, and the naysayers are saying, well, this is mass hysteria. But when I first started seeing this, I was seeing, you know, West Texas ranchers, and these are not people who spend time, you know, trying to invent diseases for themselves. They're hardworking guys, and they don't, they don't even spend time on, on the computer. And they would come in, and they would say, okay, here's my symptoms. I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but okay, I'm telling them to you anyway. And, and they would tell me the whole list of, of unusual-sounding symptoms. 
And I would, when I first started seeing these people, I thought, gosh, this is so bizarre. All these people name every symptom the same. And, the, and I, they're weird symptoms, but they're, they're all saying the same thing. And it wasn't like they could just have copied it off the internet at that point. You know, they, and that, that's, I think, what first made me a believer. Because how could you have all these people coming in from different walks of life, different professions, you know, different ethnic backgrounds, everything, and, and all of them just listing off the same exact list of very bizarre, unusual symptoms. It, that was enough right there to really make me pay attention, um, you know, early on. And then, of course, once I started looking carefully with magnification, oh, my gosh, the things I was seeing, the hair would stand up on the back of my neck because I was thinking, you know, nobody sh should be seeing things like this coming out of the human body. But, but, but you know, I, and I have to admit, I, at, at the beginning, I would call my colleagues in and I'd say, look, could you, I just want to make sure I'm not crazy because... I'm, there's a blue fiber coming out of this person's forehead. Are you seeing that too? And they're like, yeah, I am. And you know, and you try to pull it out and you couldn't pull it out. And there, there's something, you know, does kind of give you goosebumps uh, when you see unusual things like that. So you can only imagine what it's like to be one of the sufferers, right? Who's having these crazy, unusual things happen to them that are so scary. And then they go to their doctor or first they go to their spouse or their best friends and then they go, you're, you're crazy. And then they go to the doctor and the doctor says, you're crazy. And then they say, but, but tell me about these. I mean, how come I'm having these fibers? And then the doctors will say, oh, you're sticking those in there. And I, was, I argue with these doctors. I say, have you ever really tried to extract these fibers? Because you can't. That Nobody could, could stick something inside themselves like that. These are, these are deeply embedded. You know, you, you, I mean, if you just... Spend a little time, you know, that's what I'm always saying to other doctors. Spend some time, you know, look at these people, look with lighted magnification, and you'll be amazed at the things that you'll see. But I think part of the problem is doctors these days are, are too busy. You know, they, they, they move in, they move the patients in and out pretty fast. They've got to, and they don't have a lot of time for doing that, you know, spending time doing that. So, you know, it's not like I can, I, I mean, I, I understand in a way, way, but I, I do not understand. What I do not understand, and I really fault my colleagues for, is immediately conferring a psychiatric diagnosis on somebody just because they don't understand what's going on with them. You know, the more appropriate thing would be to say, wow, you do have something going on here. I don't know what it is. Maybe we can research it together. Maybe we can figure out what's going on, but not telling somebody they're crazy because they have unusual symptoms, right? That's just because, because something isn't understood doesn't mean it does not exist. Exactly. And so that's, that's a, I, I just feel there's no excuse for that. And I'm very disappointed in my colleagues that, that, that continue to behave that way. And it's, it's just not right. But anybody who spent any time with patients with Morgellons disease and really looked at the skin and, and really listened to them and, as much time as I've spent with them, I mean, you, you don't even have a moment of doubt that this is a real disease. Of course it's a real disease. It, it's, the question is, what's causing this, you know? And I do honestly believe it's something, uh, it's an infection, it's, it's probably bacterial, and it's causing the body to do 
crazy weird things that it's not supposed to be doing. And we don't even understand all those things yet or why. But and, and I think, you know, the whole thing always gets started with the infection getting under the skin. So in other words, it's not an infection. Very much like AIDS, it's not something you can catch casually. You can't catch it by sharing a glass with somebody even or, or, or sitting next to them uh, or, or talking to them or anything like that. It's, it's something where blood has to, to go with blood. And, and that's why I think that often we see the puncture wounds uh, starting the whole process. The uh, flea bites, tick bites, splinters, thorns, all that kind of thing is, is what we often hear as the initiation. How can thorns transfer the pathogen? How can, how uh, well, I just think that whatever the, the pathogen is, it has to get under the skin. So anything that punctures the skin, yeah that's not sterile you know like you know hopefully like if you were if you were given a shot or an intravenous in the hospital or something like that that would be they would be using something pretty clean but anything out in nature yes. uh that is dirty you know i've always said this is a disease Morgellons is a disease that's associated with filth <laughs> you know it's really you know there there is and i i've seen people get it from swimming in dirty uh one patient of mine had gone swimming in the ganges river in India, and I've seen people get it after camping or being exposed to just a filth or, or having an infestation in their house of, of bird mites or, you know, it just, it kind of, there, there are these stories that you hear over and over of how, of how this thing got, got started. You start to sort of notice there's this tendency toward filth is the best way I can say it, you know, I mean, just dirt and when you when you think of any disease that's associated with that you think of um you know bacteria you know so i don't know it's, it's it'll be exciting to see what we find out but this association with lyme disease has been intriguing there have been a number of different bacteria the bartonella and uh, bacteria as well as the lyme bacteria and interestingly enough, H. pylori, which is a bacteria that causes stomach ulcers, mm. those bacteria have all been found in these um, the lesions of the of the Morgellons patients. So you know what to make of all this. Now, meanwhile, back in the trenches where I am, <laughs> just taking care of the people. I'm not a researcher. I'm not in the laboratory. I'm just trying to help people. Um, what I interestingly find out is that if I treat people as though they have Bartonella, which is an, an, uh, a bacterial infection, then that's when they, they have, I have the best luck of getting them better from their Morgellons. So I have seen this clinically, I've seen it's such an association between Bartonella and, um, and Morgellons disease. And Bartonella can even be caught through flea bites and it can be caught through cat scratches. It's, it's called, in its acute form, it's called cat scratch fever. And so um, people can, uh, you know, get a cat scratch and they can get a Bartonella infection. So I don't know what that connection is with Bartonella and Morgellons, but I just see it. Uh, seems to be a very close connection there. And that's how I always proceed. I always tell people, look, if your doctor knows how to treat Bartonella, just have them do that first, if nothing else, because that's usually how we have our best success in treating Morgellons. Uh, only trouble is the average doctor doesn't really know how to treat Bartonella that well either. But um, like I said before, I am more than happy to share information on treatment 
with other healthcare providers. I cannot do that with patients. I can I get into a, a lot of legal trouble, which I've already been through. And uh, so I need to uh, have a patient's doctor or physician assistant, nurse practitioner, anybody that can prescribe, uh, send me a direct email and say, I have a patient who I believe has Morgellons disease and I, I would like some help in, in, in treating them. And I have I've written up a special paper for that purpose and I'm more than happy. I just send it right out to them by return email. And uh, also we'll answer their questions later, which many of them do follow up with me and say, okay, I tried this and that wasn't so great. So now what do I do? You know, like, so I'm spending more and more of my time now just kind of helping other doctors around the world um, with, with trying to treat their own patients. So that, that's kind of a good thing because honestly, obviously I couldn't treat all of, there's just too many people for me to treat alone and I've only got, you know, maybe a handful of colleagues that are also treating this. So, um, you know, I just, what I prefer to do, because since I can't take on every one of these patients myself, is, I mean, I still do, I have a practice, I still do see new patients, but I, I would prefer for the sake of the patient that they find someone closer to them. And if they can find somebody who's at all sympathetic, then, then they can connect with me and then I can help them uh, with how to treat them. So that's, that's a, something that I'm more than happy to, to offer to anybody. But unfortunately, I do understand that it involves you having to find a healthcare provider who is at least empathetic. And people will often say, there you go, that's the hard part right there. <laughs> a lot so of stuff. I, know, I know that's hard. But, uh, but, you know, I think it's getting a little better. I really do. I think there's more and more out there that are starting to catch on and admit that something's going on and not just immediately relegate everyone to the psychiatrist's office you know i found open doctors are very very hard to find i i, I went through about yes. five or six doctors till i found one i was comfortable with and was actually willing to listen and not sit there and be an expert about everything and tell me this. it's very hard it's very hard i find the people who are the luckiest uh, of finding empathetic doctors are people who have been going to the same practitioner for many years and the practitioner knows them very well and all of a sudden they come in and they're talking about these fibers and this practitioner thinks you know I've been taking care of you for 20 years I know you're sane as can be I, I know you're not crazy so I, I'm gonna listen awesome. you know whereas I think if somebody just walks into an urgent care facility and says I have fibers growing out of my skin there's a tendency there to go, well, obviously this person's just kind of wacky and, mm. you know, they, they discount them. But um, usually I, I find those, those are the ones I'm hearing from is the doctors. A lot of times they're small town doctors or the country doctors who really know their patients well. They might, they probably treated their parents, their grandparents, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, those are the ones that are a little bit more open-minded about believing what's going on with all of this. The question that I've got just right now, before I ask another one, is, is Lyme a new disease? No. We didn't hear about this 100 years ago. People, I, I haven't heard any reports of people feeling well, like crawlies under their skin or, fire, or things coming out from Okay, now, wait a minute. We're talking about Lyme or Morgellons now? Oh, okay. Well, okay, a combination of both. Let's go to Morgellons then. Okay, so now Morgellons, I don't believe it's new. And this is why I always argue with people who say, oh, it's all something to do with um, 
with the GMOs or, you know, it's, it's things that, that people will talk about um, it as though it's a new phenomenon. Now, yes. I, I, I know uh, one of my patients, and I, and I write about him in my book, um, he had had it personally for 50 years, and his parents had both had it. And so, you know, I don't know, I can't really go back and know, but I have a feeling that maybe in, you know, third world countries, this has kind of been a thing that people have known about. And this patient had gone to a small town in Mexico to see if he could get some help. And um, they had basically said, oh yeah, we know what you have. You have cactus man disease because he had these things coming out of the skin. And so they, they had a, you know, sort of a folk wisdom familiarity with the whole thing. And they had their own little peculiar way of trying to treat it, which really didn't end up helping him. But, but at least it wasn't like they weren't saying you're delusional. You know, they, they thought it was a real thing. But so I don't know how, how long it goes back, but I, I, I really don't believe it's, this is, we're talking about a new thing that's only been around for a decade or two. I, I think it's, you know, it hasn't been around longer than that. But here's the thing. I think it's just, it's been around. It's just, what, how do you think the term delusions of parasitosis happened? You know, I think when I, my thought is there's no such thing as delusions of parasitosis. I think all of these people that have ever presented with, to these doctors who were then labeled that way, they all really had something. It's just, it, it wasn't being caught. It wasn't being understood. They weren't being really listened to or examined properly. But so that means this could, could have been going on for hundreds of years, but the people were quickly silenced and sent off to psychiatric. And, you know, back in the old days, they, they, they put them in straight jackets, you know, and, and the, uh, and the psych wards. So I think people learned through the years who had this to just, I better shut my mouth, you know, because I'm just, I'm going to get sent away somewhere. And so I think now, though, people are just not as afraid because now that it's been talked about, it's been getting a name, it's in the media, um, you know, there's a movie coming out soon about it that's um, in the last production stage right now. And I've written my book on it. And, you know, it's just getting out there more so people don't feel as unsafe to come forth and, and say, yeah, I have this too. You know, they're not afraid they're going to get locked up somewhere for, for saying it. Right. Um, yeah. Ted has written and he's said um, he's had open lesions and with a handheld microscope, I've seen fibers in my tissue. So people can use a small, like a, a USB microscope and view Absolutely. the fibers themselves. Exactly. And usually the magnification you want is about anywhere from anywhere from 30 to 100 X, um, somewhere in there about 60 is usually good. Um, the standard uh, dermoscope that, that a dermatologist carries in their pocket is only about a 12 X, so it's not quite enough. So that if they look with that, they wouldn't be seeing it. Um, if you get up way high, 300, 405, that's almost, that's too much. But usually somewhere right anywhere in the range of 30 to 100 is pretty good. And you can buy those things for, oh my gosh, there's one on eBay you can buy. I've mentioned in my book, it's like $2.50 or something. Oh, and you can be, be great with it. That'll be going up because of the tariffs, though. <laughs> <laughs> so. And, uh, you know, and of course, uh, that is being China, you know. Yeah. But it, it actually is, it works really well. And, and you, you can see what you need to see with that. 
But you know, it's not normal to have fibers in, in your skin like that. So you no. know that that's, that's something going on there, you know. But, but how would you explain the colors that some of these fibers are? Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, there are different, you know, the researchers said things to me like, well, you know, melon. It's still it to me. I mean, because I just know this brilliant blue. It can be turquoise. Um, and see the orange, but you do these different colors. Very, and I don't. I oh, believe me, we're still so. You know, so many questions. I think the most important for all of us is to realize crazy, you know, people have a disease and, and they're suffering terribly and, and it's just not right to be telling these people they're, they're delusional and, and not even trying to help them. It's just, it's just not right. And, and that's step one, but you know, they always say with alcoholics, the first step is realizing you have a problem. Well, first step with Morgellons is realizing we have a problem too, you know? I mean, we've, we've got to, to raise awareness in the medical community that this is a real thing, because only then are we gonna to get to the point where we can you know, request funding so that we can really get at the bottom of this and understand it a little bit better about what's going on, because my goodness, I mean, it's, it's just getting, it, 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 I, do, I really do not know if there's an increase in numbers or whether it's just more people are coming forth and saying, well, there's just no way for us to know that. I mean, to me, it always seems like there's an increase in numbers, but that's because I'm getting their calls and emails every day, right? But I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It, it may be the same as it always was. And, and people are just now feeling a little safer about coming forth about it. Right. Um, Rosie's written in and she says that she had a scrub tick when she was around two years old. She's now 67, so it didn't kill her, but her parents said that she was very sick and were worried about her. Um, and they found a tick in her ear. Um, she says they probably put metho on it. I, I'm not sure what metho is. Maybe Was it methylated spirits? And, uh, and, and okay. you mean metho as in soy product? I, I don't know. Maybe it's... Oh, okay. She's just written metho. Because um, okay. they're living in the bush, and she's asking the question: Would I still have pathogens in my system? And if so, what what should I do about it? Well, here's the thing that I very most often see: I many times see people who have actually had the infection in their body many years, but it's been kind of dormant because their immune system has been keeping it at bay. And then maybe at some point in their life, in fact, this is on my questionnaire of my new patients is. Did, right before your symptoms started, did some major thing happen in your life? And this could have been physical, like a surgery or a car accident, or, or having a baby, or it could be more emotional, like a divorce or death in the family, but something big that rocked your world where your immune system was really just knocked down. And then that's a good opportunity for a dormant, latent infection that's been just simmering, laying low, to just come forth because you know it realizes, hey, this is our big chance. The immune system is off guard now. And so this is the way I see this happen 
probably more often than, uh, than an acute case where somebody just came in and tell me, hey, I got this bite and all this. It's, it's usually a little bit more complicated than that. And I, the story, like this lady said, is, is something I hear very often. I, I got a bite when I was a little kid. I got very, very sick. And then I got better, but all my life, I don't know, there's been a lot of things that just haven't been quite right, you know, and I've never been a really healthy person since then. And, you know, these are the kind of stories I hear all the time with the Morgellons patients. Yeah. Okay, so um, treating Lyme, treating Morgellons, <laughs> what, what sort of treatments do you provide or do you suggest? in lifestyle changes that one may make. Right. Well, honestly, I love I love using herbs when possible uh, instead of antibiotics and and there are some herbs that are pretty helpful. But honestly, this is one of those cases where kind of desperate times call for desperate measures. I mean, people usually used to need to be on multiple antibiotics to really get anywhere with treatment. I've had some patients with very mild cases that were able to make some lifestyle changes, take some herbs, take some supplements, and they were able to get well. But that is the minority. The majority of people really do have to go after this a little bit harder than that. They've got to make a lot of lifestyle changes, really, really clean up their diet, and they've got to you know, take supplements. There's herbals and, and the antibiotics on top of it. And, you know, people get scared about antibiotics, you know, and they, they especially get scared of taking them for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I do see people do very well. We have people take herbs that protect the liver and, and uh, probiotics to keep them from getting yeasty. And I'm always checking their labs just to make sure there's no damage to the liver, kidneys or anything. And so the very vast majority of people do fine. Obviously, it's not ideal to give somebody a bunch of antibiotics for a long time. But again, desperate time calls for desperate measures. People are on the brink of suicide sometimes. So the last thing I'm going to worry about is them, you know, getting a yeast infection from their antibiotics. I mean, people can get their lives back when they're treated appropriately. So you just have to do that, that risk assessment with it. Okay. Because antibiotic use long-term is something which they're trying to stop, isn't it? Because you get the resistance of the antibiotics from the bugs? Well, well, here's the thing I, I truly believe. Um, there's a saying, dead bugs don't mutate. So I think what you, where you worry the most about resistance is when you get too little antibiotics too, for too short of a time, because then what you're doing is you're killing off the weaker and letting the strong survive. If you're giving very high dose to antibiotics over an extended period of time, you're, you're, you're kind of not letting anybody survive, you know. So, so actually, you're really courting resistance more by doing things like taking an antibiotic for a cold where you didn't need it or by taking antibiotics for two days where your doctor gave you two weeks and you just say, eh, and, you know, you stop. Now, those are the things that are, are, are very worrisome behaviors in regard to antibiotic resistance. But I have not seen any problem in all the years I've been, been treating people with multiple long-term antibiotics for Lyme disease. I've never seen any kind of a situation like that develop with these people. Mostly the worst thing that happens, like I say, is a yeast infection or they, you know, they might get diarrhea from, from the antibiotics. But usually all those things can be managed very well. Again, we're talking about a situation 
a dire situation, extremely ill people. I mean, chemotherapy is no fun either. It's, chemotherapy is awful for you, but you know, if you can, if it can save your life uh, from cancer, then hey, you, you you take the risk with it. And that's what I'm talking about here with this too. And I, I don't love the idea of giving people a bunch of antibiotics, but gee, it's certainly nice to see people who are, you know, in an awful, awful shape, uh, very disabled, and not to mention the fact on the verge of suicide, to see them get their life back, you know, that's it's, it's worth it. So how long would they need to take antibiotics for? I have uh, pretty much with my Morgellons patients, I, I basically, I'm, it's, it's at least a year. It's at least a year. And it varies. I have seen it all the way up to as long as um, six years. Wow. Not very often. But on the average, I would say it's about two and a half years. So it's very similar to say, for example, tuberculosis, you know, tuberculosis people have to treat uh, with several antibiotics for, you know, about two and a half years. So it's, it's, just, it's, I'm not, I'm not saying that more, I don't want anybody to say, Oh, that I say more jealous is caused by tuberculosis or anything like it. I'm just saying <laughs> in the sense that you have to treat it for a long time with several different antibiotics. So that, that idea is not, unheard of in medicine to have to do that thank you everyone for watching it's been fantastic having you with us we've been talking about lyme morgellons what it is how i can treat it and we've been blessed with the presence of dr ginger safely so i'd like to thank her for the time that she spent with us so again goodbye lovely having you with us <laughs>